Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Ruth Gamble, a DECRA Fellow in History at La Trobe University. And I'm hosting this episode because we are traveling, in our imaginations anyway, to the region in which I do most of my research, the Himalaya. This mountain range and the adjacent Tibetan plateau houses the globe's third biggest ice pack and are the source of most of Asia's major rivers, including the Indus, Ganga, Brahmaputra, Mekong, Yangtze and Yellow Rivers. These rivers provide water to at least a third of humanity. And the mountains themselves, stretching from Pakistan through India, Nepal, Bhutan, Myanmar and China, are home to around 60 million people. Over the past century or so, the peoples of this mountain have had to endure colonization, unstable geopolitics, and now are climate changing at twice global averages. Despite this, they have survived and in some cases thrived, coming up with innovative ways to adapt to these changes. And I'm happy to say that one of the leading voices in this movement for a resilient Himalaya is joining us today to tell us about her work and the mountains, Tsichudroma. Tsichudroma is the co-founder and director of the Mountain Resilience Project, uh, NGO. Tsechu was recognized as an Asia Society Youth Leader, one of Forbes magazine's 30 under 30 in social entrepreneurship, and she's won a Broa Youth Award. She's also been a Fulbright Hillary Clinton Public Policy Fellow, an Udell Scholar, a Wild Gifts Fellow, an Echoing Green Fellow, and a Skull Fellow at Oxford University. And she did all this despite, as we're about to find out, being born stateless in a refugee camp in Nepal. So, welcome to Asia Rising, Suchudroma Dashideli. Tashdele Ruth, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I just thought that most of our listeners won't know so much about the background uh, to the Himalaya and the Tibetan situation there. So maybe if we can learn a little bit from your story, then that can speak to the broader story of the Tibetans' experience and the Nepali villagers' experience in, in the mountains. So was it your parents or your grandparents that left Tibet and came to Nepal as refugees? My parents, my father, he was a monk living in um, the eastern part of Tibet, so in the Kham region. Him and his brothers and his father, they were all monks until the destruction of several monasteries by the People's Liberation Army from the Chinese Communist Party. As they came into eastern Tibet, my father and his brother and siblings, they had to join the guerrilla army and they made their way ransacking the Chinese forces and making their mm-hmm. way to Nepal. And through this journey, my dad ended up in Kathmandu, but along this process, you get to go through a lot of the, the borderland regions um, between Tibet and Nepal. And for him, that whole journey was part of coming to exile. And that's where he met my mother, who is from southern Tibet, from the Utsang region. And they met together in a refugee camp in Nepal, south of Kathmandu, and that's where I was born and raised. Right. Yeah, so I guess people don't realize that there's been like long-standing refugee camps of Tibetans all through Nepal and India, and there were in Bhutan as well. This is where you were born and raised, in a refugee camp as a stateless person. Yes. Did you have much interactions with the villagers in that case? Were the Tibetans mm-hmm. living in a similar way to Nepali villagers? Or? 
there's a lot of Tibetan refugees, communities scattered across the border of Nepal and Tibet. I think a lot of them were living in the borders because, like my family, we always thought we were going to go back at some point. Being in Nepal was just a temporary situation, so being in the border made it the most easy in case we want our freedom. It's easy for us to go back, but unfortunately that did not happen. During the 90s, when I was growing up, we were still able to smuggle ourselves back into Tibet and visit mm. our family members because my mom still had some of her siblings. Uh, her parents were left behind there, and my father too. He left his mother behind, and he left his sisters. So we were still able to go back to Tibet through, I guess, illegal uh, yeah. passages. So I grew up seeing how my father's nomadic family still lived in eastern Tibet, living in the pasture lands up there, and then my mother's family, less nomadic and more settled farming community in southern Tibet. So seeing this great variation across like hundreds of miles from eastern Tibet to southern Tibet, seeing how Tibetan lives are so different based yeah. on our landscape and geography. And then when we are traveling through the illegal passageways between Nepal and Tibet, I vividly remember like coming across the passes and living in different villages across many months, so that we could more easily blend in and more、mm. easily get through all this border security stuff and not cause so much attention to ourselves. So yeah, right. Uh, seeing that as a kid, I could see you know coming from the high mountains down to the lower foothills in Nepal. Yeah, the foothills see... of Nepal, which are like only a few thousand meters high. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those foothills.、Um, seeing the changes in like people's environments, people's livelihood. All of those left such a deep impact on me as a kid. Yeah, it would have been quite extraordinary. And I guess that the environment in between the borderlands of Nepal and Tibet isn't that. Different along that border, it's not like the border makes a big difference, is it? Traditionally, a lot of nomadic movement across those regions too. But then you had to leave again. Blooming heck, that's like a you you get like a refugee into another country, and then there's like a civil war breaks out there, and you have to leave again. That was also very,、um, very, very traumatic as a kid because I remember in my refugee camp, we were one of like a dozen. Tibetan refugee camps in Nepal, and the minute you're born, you don't get a birth certificate from the、yeah. Nepalese government or a Nepalese hospital. You don't get any of those things. Instead, you just get a tiny paper that is handwritten and that says like Tibetan Refugee Welfare Office, and you don't even get that at birth. You get that like when you're a teenager or later. <laughs> I, I don't even know when, but not having proper documentation of Your existence, your family's existence. My home for me is the refugee home I grew up in in my camp, and there's no property deed or title、yeah. or anything. We're just squatters in a beautiful home. That's what a refugee existence means:、um, not existing. And then when something like a civil war comes through and all the political forces are against each other, then people who are the most marginalized, like the refugees, are the first to go and. Our camp's land was always threatened by different political forces. We could have been kicked out of our house anytime. They would come into our homes and ransack for any kind of documents, accusing us of spying for the American government or for the Chinese government or for whatever government they could think of. Just all these accusations and not having the legal protection to do anything about it, and. 
when the civil war happened, it was just really, really bad for Tibetan refugees. And so many of us moved to North America and Europe and now yeah, right. Australia. Yeah, yeah, looking for a place where the, at least your refugee status would be recognized. Yeah, it's really yeah. a difficult transition. But then somehow, I mean, mm-hmm. I, gosh, I have this image in my head because I remember these type of kids from refugee camps that I have visited in the mountains. Were you mm-hmm. one of those ones that were like studying their textbooks under street lights and everything, trying to do well in school? <laughs> because I can't understand how you go from a, a, a village there to getting into Columbia University and then winning all of these <laughs> awards. What was that transition? transition like of going into school in America. My goodness. I think it was a lot of fun for me as a kid because there was no expectations. My parents have never been to school in their life. And for them, they're like, did you do your homework? And I could say whatever. Like I could say like, okay, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. How would you know? Or bringing a school form at home and having your parents sign like for field trips or something. And then they didn't know what was going on. Right. (laughs) I saw it in a very positive light and that it's my opportunity to teach my parents to. And that's what my siblings and I would do. Uh, For us, it was more about bringing in things from what we learned in the classroom to our parents. I don't even know when I realized that my parents couldn't read or my parents couldn't understand a lot of the words that I was learning in school. To this day, they still don't speak English. (laughs) And like most Tibetans, they have a very strong work ethic. So for them, like the work ethic and prioritizing education as a key to our own personal liberation, um, that was always so important to them. So having those values even without having the parental supervision, yeah, right. <laughs> um, it helped a lot. And it was just so much fun growing up. Having my parents, the, just the way they were, made a huge difference in the pathway I took. So they exemplified hard work, even if they didn't exemplify study necessarily. So you could take it from from their model in that way, I guess. And it also yeah, meant that you had this amazing opportunity to live between two worlds, right? You'll learn about the Tibetan world from your parents, and then you're learning this other world at, in colleges in America. So what was it that made you want to go back to the mountain world instead of, you know, getting into finance or something in New York? What was it that mm-hmm. drew you back to the mountains? My parents would always stress the importance of paying it forward. Paying it forward was always very important. In our refugee camp, we always had people coming back with whatever resources they had gained from the Western world and bringing it back to our community. So I saw my role as like, okay, sometimes a lot of these foreigners would come up with things that did not really make the most sense. Like having my foot in two different worlds just meant that you end up becoming a bridge and a cultural community translator in being a liaison to make things happen, bringing resources from one to the other and an exchange in both ways. That's how I saw myself. And after I got my degree, I realized what good is a degree if you're going to enter a workforce where a lot of other people can do the same job as you but then if I go back to my community there's only a very few people who can do very particular roles so looking at this gap in our resources really encouraged me to go back to Nepal go back to my community and and serve as a bridge 
What were the main challenges that people were experiencing there? Because I think you make like a really incredibly important point that a lot of the time people can come in and say, oh, I think you need this without asking and seeing mm-hmm. what, the, what matters to the people there. From the perspective of the people in the villages and the camps and everything, what were the main things that they needed that you could go back and work on in the starting the NGO? We saw a lot of gaps in information, specifically around education. Like, let's build schools, but we already have a lot of schools. The proper relations within the schools are not very well developed, and you just cannot build buildings for schools. You need to house them. You need to build You need local, teachers. You need teachers. You need, <laughs> that will um, stay, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, you need... Um, proper social relations between parents, teachers, uh, Mm. students. You need all of these factors to make it fully owned by the locals and gaining agency is very important. Also staying connected with my childhood friends made a huge difference in that I could talk to them on social media and be connected on what is happening in our community and what are the gaps and what kind of political pressures are still being pressed by the local Mm. government in our camps. Knowing all of these information just pushed me over the edge. And figure out how to negotiate things as well, because there's a lot of times it seems like there's a lot you need to negotiate in order to get things done. Okay, then you've kind of hinted at my next question, which was, what does being stateless and marginalised, you've already got a lot of inequalities and you need Mm -hmm. to try and work hard to improve livelihood. How has climate change impacted that transformation? What impact is it having on the people and who are already trying to get together a livelihood with these kind of political pressures? How, How is that affecting them? Climate change, in terms of resource and scarcity, it just worsens things a lot more and it just makes everything feel more urgent and heightened and refugees and other marginalized people in these low resource areas, there's already a limited amount of materials and resources available. And when you go down the line of who gets what, we're at the bottom of the list. We also have like the tiniest margin of error for anything. So whether it's in crop failure, whether it's in gender-based violence, whether it's in flooding, the margin of error is so, so, so slim for people in the bottom of the list. We started Mountain Resiliency just to increase this margin of bouncing back after a disaster strikes or bouncing back after there's a lot of political threats. Yeah. It seems like the people must have had resilience and, and I've seen it, you know, community mm-hmm. resilience in order to be able to, to grow crops and to uh, have a good livelihood in an area that is, I mean, it's amazing, but it's also can be a bit hard to get food from, basically. Are you going to have more refugees coming down? Is it going to be like climate refugees in these regions as well as political refugees? And will your resilience project then need to expand to try and help those people as well? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a lot of displacement due to flooding in northern Nepal. And whenever a community is displaced, the rates of gender-based violence increases, the rates of barriers to health, education, all of those increases. And that is a reality we're going to continue facing. The floods that were once like once in a century is now every other year and every year there's like a new surprise about is the monsoon going to be shorter is the monsoon going to be longer and then it's going to be way too long and 
damage everything. So displacement is something that has happened throughout history, I guess. But then nowadays, it's even exacerbated because of globalization, but also by the access to a lot of basic goods. The barriers for access is just increasing because of the displacement. And the displacement's happening, I can say this as a historian, the displacement's happening faster. I'm also interested that you've talked about gender-based violence a couple of times. How important do you think it is for you to be a young woman who's doing this work? What's the reaction from people in the field and, and what do you think that you can bring to it as a woman? Yeah, South Asia just in general has a very bad record with gender-based violence. And within Nepal and in the rural areas, Being a female going around talking about all these issues, it's at a great personal risk too. A lot of the times when we go to the communities for our education projects, it takes a lot of male allyship within the community to validate the things that are coming out of our trainings. So building alliances with male leaders within the communities who are aligned with our mission and who are aligned with our beliefs around protecting vulnerable women and the vulnerable populations. All of that is so necessary in accurately and successfully delivering our message. Mm, Wow. It's so good that you're doing it, even though you have to make an extra effort, it seems like, to be able to do it well. The other thing I really wanted to ask you about was what you thought coming from that perspective where you're on the front line of seeing how climate's impacting people in these vulnerable but resilient communities. What goes through your head when you're looking at something like COP26 and all of these world leaders uh, coming around the table and maybe not getting it together enough to do it? How do you feel about the outcome and, and, and what goes through your head when you're watching it? I've been to several COPs in the past. I missed this last one in Glasgow, but people are just anticipating and putting so much value into what the wealthier countries promise. Mm, And then mm. I always make it a point to follow what China releases or promises to every COP. It was really shocking this year that even with all this big headlines around condemning the Chinese government on the genocide against the Uyghurs, um, Mm. none of the human rights stuff were brought up at COP. And for me, having human rights and climate change, it's not a one or the other. It's a a conversation that happens at the same time. It was very shocking and expected for me to see that human rights was not brought up. And then when you are representing countries like Nepal or Tibet, um, where we don't get any representation at all, we just have to like fight our way outside of every single important talk venue. Just be a voice in the streets about raising awareness about what's happening in Tibet, what's happening in the Himalayas. So this COP was almost pretty uninventful and there was no specificity in how these countries like the big wealthy countries will reach these goals but then at the same time the people who feel the most impact of these numbers not being cut down are the people up in the mountains yeah and we're the ones who have to live with the immediate impacts and we're the ones who have to secure a future for our children and youth immediately because otherwise there won't be a future up in the mountains. 
Yeah. And, and it also struck me that they're arguing about whether they should do it as opposed mm. to how they're going to do it. And the how in some ways affects people in the mountains as well, right? If you have like lots of hydropower and, and lots of extracting of resources from there. Mm-hmm. If you could design a cop, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a conference of the parties, right, <laughs> just to finish off. And it was like, you know, it says you draw land. Who would you bring together? Who would you like to see in the room deciding what gets to happen? I mean, honestly, the way I would structure it in terms of giving value to the different representatives, it would be on a scale of like communities that are immediately being impacted yeah. right now. So yeah. like the small island nations, the mountains, the deserts, uh, the people who are already feeling the biggest impacts right now would get the loudest voices in in the conference because these are the communities I would trust more than yeah lawmakers who just sit in nice, comfortable chairs. I would rely on the fishermen and women. I would rely on the farmers. These are the people who would get the loudest voices in the room. And then people who are the most marginalized and disproportionately impacted by climate change, I would trust them more with making decisions on our climate future. Yeah, sounds like a plan. I want to, I'd go to that <laughs> cop. <laughs> oh, it's been so great to be able to talk to you and I'm, I'm such a fan of your work and I really hope that we can talk again at some stage in the future. Maybe the, eventually we'll get a Setu Drama cop and then you can tell us what you thought of how that went. All right? Yes. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for letting me share my and my community story. Oh. It's been very great to listen to it. All right, so you've been listening to Asia Rising. It's a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Please leave a review. They are very much appreciated. And you can follow us on Twitter. Setu is at at Setudoma, T-S-E-C-H-U-D-O-L-M-A. And I'm at water underscore the planet. And the podcast is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Ruth Gamble, and thanks for listening.